0: Let's pray. Father in heaven, once again, we're in this spot where we're looking to you and we're counting on you. And we're asking that this would not be simply a human event with human words being received by human minds. But Lord, we're asking for a supernatural event that by your Holy Spirit, you would so help me to declare your word. And then by the power of your spirit, that that word would sink deep down into the soil of the hearts of everyone who listens. And that, Father, the result would be faith in you. That everyone who listens would listen as an active participant by faith, receiving the word, receiving Christ in your word. And so being drawn to you, seeing your glory and being changed to produce lives of fruit of godliness and of fruit that bears glory to your name. And so, Lord, I'm asking that you would do this, not for our sake, but for your sake, O Lord, and for our good. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine I read a news report to you this morning that said something along the lines of this. After years of sleep, a major global superpower far in the East awakens to expand its empire and and swallow up neighboring countries. Smaller nations band together in alliances and are nervously suspicious of those who won't join them against this Eastern aggressor. Former treaties fall apart as each nation tries to find its place in the new global order. When would you say this news report could have been written? 2022, perhaps? Well, yes, but also what about 753 BC? This was the year that the events of today's passage took place, and these were the years. Uh, this was a time period in which the current events of Isaiah's day sound very, very similar to the current events of our present day. And, and Isaiah chapter 7 plunges us right into the middle of these turbulent days. In Isaiah chapter 6, we found ourselves at the at the beginning, as far as we can see, at the beginning of Isaiah's public ministry. That was the year that King Uzziah died. And in Isaiah chapter 7, now we've jumped ahead several years, uh, sev- to, so, probably several decades, to the first year of King Ahaz, who is Uzziah's grandson. And so we know uh, from 2 Kings 16 and Second Chronicles 28 that Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And so he's not only a, a new king, but he's also just a, a young man. And the situation uh, that meets him as the new king is 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 pretty stark. In, in the wider world, Assyria, who is that big superpower to the east... Assyria had had been gaining strength and was starting to threaten other nations and was starting to really scare people in, in Ahaz's part of the world. Now, Assyria had been a threat in the past. Assyria had, had been a problem for a lot of years. They were kind of the the, the first of these big... Uh, These big eastern empires um, that that came from the land of the Tigris and the Euphrates That basically wanted to swallow up the whole world Nineveh was the capital of Assyria And so we're familiar with that from the story of of Jonah But in Uzziah's day, in the reign of Uzziah Assyria had kind of backed off somewhat from this plan of, of global dominance Of taking over the world and so Israel and Judah enjoyed a time period of, of of not a lot of pressure coming at them from Assyria. But but now Assyria has a new king, and they've got fresh ambitions to expand their control and to grow their empire. And so they're turning up the pressure again on these western states that are found off uh, closer to the Mediterranean, which includes the kingdom of Israel in the north, and then the kingdom of, of Judah in the south. And so a number of these, these states closer to the Mediterranean, including the northern kingdom of Israel, and then the country of Syria. Now, not Assyria. Syria and Assyria are, are different. Uh, but you've got Israel, and then you've got Syria up here, uh, which is really close to actually where the modern-day uh, country of Syria is. They shared the same capital city, uh, Damascus, and uh I'm actually not 100% sure that Damascus is the capital city of the modern-day country of Syria. I think so, but, but don't quote me on that. But Assyria and, and Israel form an alliance together, and this is sort of an alliance to protect and defend themselves against Assyria. And from what we can tell, the, the southern kingdom of Judah didn't want to join their alliance. Okay, and you can find all of this in, in 2 Kings and, and 2 Chronicles, and there'll be some information on this in the in the study guides this week. And so you've got Syria and Israel and Judah, and Judah doesn't want to join their alliance. And so that's a big problem for, for this alliance, because you've got a weak spot there. And what if, what if he doesn't want to join your alliance, because he's actually really friendly towards Assyria? That's a big threat to them. And we actually know from 2 Kings 16, 2 Chronicles 28, those are the two chapters that that deal with the history of Ahaz, we know that Ahaz is really friendly towards Assyria. So did these two kings, Israel and Syria, did did they sniff that out? Did they know that this was going to happen? We're not sure, but either way, Israel and Syria are threatened by Judah They want a king in Judah who will join their coalition against Assyria. And so in the first year of Ahaz's reign, when he's still wet behind the ears, they plan to invade and they plan to take him out. And they plan to put a a king on the throne who will suit their purposes and who will, will line up with their designs. Regime change. And that's what, that's what they're after here. If you look at a map, you might have maps in the back of your Bible, you'll see that, that Jerusalem is, is actually quite close or was close to the northern border of Judah. And, and Judah shared this big border with Israel. And so it wouldn't have really been all that tough for them to just come in, topple the government, put their own puppet king on, go back out. And now they've got a strong coalition, a strong alliance against Assyria. And so that's where Isaiah chapter 7 picks us up. Okay, That's a bit of the historical background. And if history isn't interesting to you, I, uh, I wish you the best, but we'll pick up here in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. But could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league, you know, they made an alliance with Ephraim, and Ephraim's a name that was often used of Israel. They were one of the most powerful tribes, and and so Ephraim, we're gonna read that a few times in the passage talking about Israel. Syria is in league with Ephraim when they heard this, when the house of David was told, right, that's, that's Ahaz, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Okay, this is one of the worst things that could happen for this nation, any nation, any king, let alone a new king. Right, To have a country that you share a big border with or close to your capital city, and they want to come and take you out and and they 've got foreign support I mean this is really bad news, and so they 're just trembling like like trees in a storm, and so what God does is He sends Isaiah the prophet to go speak to the king the The, the prophets in many ways were like ambassadors for God. And and they now come to, 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 to speak, Isaiah comes to speak this message. Verse three. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So Isaiah is supposed to go and meet the king and he's supposed to bring his son. Uh, and not because it's national uh, bring your kid to work day, but because Isaiah's son himself is a part of the message. We're going to see this again with, with Isaiah's next child, who has a, a, a name that uh, likewise is not found at the top of too many um, baby names lists, but nevertheless has an important message. Shi'ar jashub means a remnant shall return. Okay? And in Hebrew, that's just what it was. You know, you'd call the kids in for supper and you say a remnant shall return come on in and and yet the the the, this name was a message it was a message that even though judgment was coming that there was going to be an exile that a remnant would return would come back to the land and Jordan talked about this last week that there was going to be a remnant not everyone was going to be wiped out that's an important message a message of judgment and hope and it's tied up just in this kid's name And Isaiah goes out to meet the king, as verse 3 says, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool. This is an important detail because what this was was kind of like an aqueduct where they were bringing water into the city so that they could survive a siege. This was a part of the siege preparations. Maybe the king is out, you know, inspecting this to make sure, you know, if if we get surrounded, are are we going to still have have fresh water that's going to be able to come in? And so they're out checking checking out these siege preparations, making sure they're going to be able to survive a long siege. And Isaiah and his son give this message to Ahaz, starting in verse 4. And say to him, This is Isaiah's message: be careful, be quiet, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you saying let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeal as king in the midst of it thus says the Lord God it shall not stand And it shall not come to pass for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Romalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So let's pull apart this message that Isaiah gives to Ahaz and let's try and understand what it is that, that God, through Isaiah, is communicating here to, to Ahaz. So, first in verse 4, Isaiah tells Ahaz to not be afraid, but not just to not be afraid. He tells him not to act on his fear, whatever fear he might have. And he says it in four ways Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. And so he's telling him repeatedly, don't be afraid and don't act on that fear. Don't go rushing off and doing things. Keep your mouth shut. Be careful. Be watchful is the sense of that word. Be quiet. Don't just do something. Stand there is what he's telling him. And this is an important message, given what we know, again, 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, that when this threat from Israel and Syria comes, the knee-jerk reaction that Ahaz has is to go and reach out to Assyria for help, right? That's, that's what he wants to do, and spoiler alert, that's what he does, and he's going to try to do something. And in, in those days, this is what small kings would do. They would, if they were threatened, they would just reach out to a big king and say, help me out. And we know Israel faced this temptation. Judah, they faced this temptation many, many times. And God is saying, don't do that. Don't just do something that makes human sense to you. Just stand there. Just, just, just be quiet and watchful and trust me. That's what he's saying. And the reason why why Ahaz needs to do that is because from God's perspective, this attack from, from Rezan and from Pekah is is no big deal. These are just two puny kings, and they're nothing to be afraid of. And God makes that clear in verse 4 when he refers to them as two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Okay, So basically it's like a piece of firewood after the fire has gone out. And it's just sitting there just smoldering, smoking, but like you can't really do much with it. And and that's what he's saying these guys are. They're spent fuel. Their their strength and their glory is is in the past. They're not really good for anything anymore. All their power has been used up already. And then God goes on to encourage Ahaz by by comparing him to these two other kings and their capital cities. Now, this is is getting at these strange phrases that that we saw there in uh, in in verses 8 and 9, where uh, where he says, well, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's let's start by just noticing, first of all, that in verse four and five and verse nine, God does not use, Isaiah does not use the name of the king of Israel. He does not say, Pekah, the king of Israel. Instead, he simply calls him the son of Ramalia. And then in verse uh, six. When they talk about he talks about the king they want to set up in place of Ahaz, he doesn't call him by name. He just says the son of Tobiel. Okay, and this is important, right? Because it makes us ask, well, who's Ramalia? Ramalia? Who's Tobiel? You know what the answer is? They're nobody. <laughs> Literally, they're nobodies. We know nothing about them because they're nobodies. They weren't kings. These guys did not come from a long line of kings. We know that Pekah was was simply the captain uh, that assassinated his his former boss, who was the previous king, and set himself up as king with the help of a bunch of other guys. But he was just a nobody from nowhere, as far as as far as we're concerned. They weren't from a dynasty or a family of kings. They were just guys who wanted to rule. And this is important to point out because. Ahaz was not like them. Ahaz was not just the son of Romalia, like, who's that? It's like saying the son of Joe. It's like okay. But no, Ahaz was the son of David, a part of a dynasty, a family of kings going back to David. And and what's important is that this was a family line that God had made promises to. God promised David, you will always have a son reigning on the throne and that he would give rest from his enemies if they trusted in him. And and Second Samuel 7 is where we find that. And think of Psalm 2 and so many of the psalms that are just dripping with promises that God was going to take care of the house of David as long as they kept trusting in God. So by, by referring to, to this northern king as the son of Romalia, he's, he's sort of saying, think of who you are. You're not just the son of a nobody. You're the son of David. And you need to trust the promises that God made to you. And then then we get into verses 8 and 9, which is where I jumped into a few moments ago, where verse 8 reminds him that the capital city of Syria is Damascus, and the leader of Damascus is Rezin. And you're like, what's that mean? It's like, well, it's just an ordinary guy in an ordinary city, and that's all they've got. And then similarly in verse 9, the capital city of Ephraim, or, or Israel, is Samaria and the leader is just the son of Remalia. We don't even use his name cuz he's just a, a a nobody, just a just a normal guy in a normal city. That's all they've got. But not Ahaz. The head of Judah was Jerusalem, which was no ordinary city, but that was the city where God had chosen for his name to dwell. And the head of Jerusalem was Ahaz, David's heir, like we've already seen, with promises of God's protection on him. And so with all of this, Ahaz is is being reminded that as long as he trusts God, he's got nothing to worry about. God has already promised him that he's going to be okay as long as he walks by faith and and trusts God and, and obeys him. And God tells him this directly in verse 7. He says about, about these plans that Syria and Israel have. He says, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. And even more devastatingly in verse 8, he says, within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. <laughs> They're not even going to exist. And we know that that's what happened. Israel and Damascus, which were, were giving him so much terror at the time. They were just normal kingdoms governed by normal men in normal cities relying on alliances with other normal countries led by normal kings in normal cities and it wasn't going to work out very well for them. But the kingdom of Judah was governed by David's heir ruling in God's city and so Ahaz didn't need to panic and try to make an alliance with Assyria. He needed to trust in God. And as verse 9 finishes up, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, go ahead and build your aqueducts, make your walls big, stock up on weapons. But you want to know where your real strength comes from. It comes from faith. Because faith connects you to the promises of God. And that's where your strength is going to come from. So that's the first part of, of Isaiah's message To Ahaz, don't worry about these guys. You keep your eyes in the right place. You look to the Lord, trust his promises, and you'll be safe. Now, that's all that Isaiah needs to say. What we've just seen in verses 1 to 9, that's all that Isaiah needs to say. That's all that God needs to say. But God is incredibly gracious. And in verse 10 and following, God takes another step towards this new king. God knows how easy it's going to be for Ahaz to be in fear. And so he reaches out to strengthen his faith in his promises. And so now comes the second message from Isaiah, from God through Isaiah to Ahaz. And in verse 10, we read this. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. There are times in the Bible where people ask God for a sign and, and it's not a good move on their part. It's, it's a sign of their own unbelief. They don't really trust God, so they're like, ah, you need to prove it to me, give me a sign. But, but here it's different. Here, God himself is offering A sign, because he wants to strengthen Ahaz's faith. He wants to give him even more reasons to trust his promises. And so he basically gives Ahaz a blank check. Ask me anything, be it as high as heaven, as low as the grave, and and I'll do it for you to prove that you can trust me. What an incredible offer. What an incredible gesture of grace from from God to this new king. Ask me anything. I'll, I'll prove to you that I'm with you. Uh, oh, but don't get don't get too excited by this, because in verse twelve, Ahaz says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. That sounds kind of self-righteous, hey? No thanks. I'm I, I I'm not gonna put God to the test. But God told you to test him. God told you to ask for a sign. So this isn't righteous. This is disobedient. This is an example of one of the times, and I'm sure we've all done it at times, where we've tried to be holier than God, tried to pretend that we're above his word, too good for his word. And really, we're just being disobedient. And probably what's going on here is that Ahaz doesn't want to ask for a sign not because he has so much faith in God that he doesn't need a sign. But rather, it's because Ahaz has already made up his mind not to believe God. We know from those other chapters in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, he's going to reach out to Assyria for help. Maybe he already has. And he doesn't want to be proven wrong. So he pretends he doesn't need a sign, but really it's because he doesn't want to believe. And Isaiah God speaking through Isaiah, he sees right through this. And he says this in verse 13. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So this language of my God sort of suggests that uh, God is not Ahaz's God. Right, he's 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 seeing through this facade, and he's basically saying like, "Are you so bored of getting on people's nerves that you're trying to get on God's nerves now too?" That's that's sort of the 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 the, the thrust of this kind of statement. And he's like like seriously, man, Isaiah, God through Isaiah sees sees right through Ahaz's words, and he knows that there's this heart of unbelief lurking there. And the next thing that God tells him is that he's not going to be turned off by his by his unbelief. God offered a sign and God is going to give a sign. Even if Ahaz won't ask for it, God's going to give it. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. This is the sign that God gives to Ahaz. And it's a sign that spells bad news for Ahaz's enemies. The sign goes like this. There's a woman. At that point in time, she's a virgin. And she's going to conceive a child. And they're probably thinking the normal way. And she's going to call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. A reminder that God was with his people. And before that boy was old enough to know and to choose the difference between good and bad, verse 16 says, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So in other words, before this kid is old enough to figure out what's right and wrong and do it, Syria and Israel are going to be deserted. So in other words, there's a countdown clock that's ticking for these two people that you're so scared of, these two countries you're so scared of. And this countdown clock is going to be about three years, right? It's maybe, it's going to be about nine months for this woman to have a baby and then however long it takes for that baby to grow up to the point where where he's able to know what's right and wrong and choose what's right and wrong. So about three years or so in total. And by that time, Israel and Syria, they won't be anything to worry about. They're going to be wiped out. So this sign is is bad news for Ahaz's enemies. But it's not just a sign for his enemies. It's also a sign for Ahaz. God knows that Ahaz has an unbelieving heart and that he already has or soon will reach out to Assyria for help. He's going to disobey God, and he's going to try to make an alliance with Assyria. We read that in 2 Kings 16.7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria." and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Oh, he just throws away his status as the son of David. And he says to this wicked king, I'm your son, come save me. And because of that, God's judgment was coming on Judah. And this judgment is described in a few different ways in these verses. Verse 15 says that this child named Emmanuel shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the good, refuse the evil rather, and choose the good. Now we're going to see later on in this passage that in this context, curds and honey were the food of of really poor people. And... This is suggesting that there's hard times coming for Judah because verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. In other words, really bad times are coming the king of Assyria. So this guy that you're going to go make a treaty with because you think he's going to save you, it's not going to work, Ahaz. He's going to bring hardship on you. And this child that's going to be born now or soon is going to grow up and is going to be dirt poor because of the hard times that are coming because of your alliance with Assyria. Right? We read that. Second Chronicles 29.20 So Tiglath-Pelezer, king of Assyria, came up against him. And afflicted him instead of strengthening him. And in verse 18 and following, our passage gives four really vivid word pictures of what these invading Assyrians were going to do to Judah. It's basically saying, You reached out to them for help, but here's what's really going to happen, Ahaz. Verses 18 and 19 compare the Assyrians to insects that are going to just fill the land, every little crevice of the land like a, like an insect infestation. Verse 20 compares, the, as, compares Assyria to a razor that's going to shave Israel bare and leave the nation just humiliated. And, and to, in, that, in those days, to have your beard and your head shaved off was completely shameful. And this was going to happen to the nation. Assyria was going to dishonor and shame the nation. Verse 21 and 22, this is our third picture. It says that the population of the land will be so small that one cow and two sheep will be, provide more than enough food for everyone to eat. James, there's not a lot of people there. And verses 23 to 25 tell us that the land itself will be desolate. And what used to be beautiful vineyards and farmland is just going to be wilderness overgrown with weeds. All of this because Ahaz refused to trust God and reached out for salvation to a wicked king who ended up becoming his oppressor. So let's review here what we've seen so far. Ahaz, brand new king. He's threatened by Israel and Syria. They want to take him off the throne. And so his knee-jerk reaction is to reach out to Assyria for help. And God tells him not to do this, but to be quiet and to wait and to trust. Because... The plans of these other nations aren't going to come to pass. God's made promises to David. He's made promises about Jerusalem. He just needs to trust. But Ahaz is so locked in in his unbelief that even when God offers him a sign, he says, No, I'm not going to ask for a sign. But God gives him a sign, anyways. There's going to be a child that's born. And before he's of a certain age, before he's very old, those two kings are going to be taken out. But your land is also going to be in a really hard spot because of what you've done. Now, it's really sad that Ahaz's unbelief was so locked in that Isaiah chapter 7 and all these words, they didn't move him, they didn't budge him at all. In fact, Ahaz, despite everything we've seen here, Ahaz went on to become one of the most wicked kings that Judah had seen. Second Chronicles 28.3 says, Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, And burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. There's this awful story in 2 Kings 16 that talks about Ahaz going up to Damascus to meet the king of Assyria. And in Damascus, the city of, of capital city of Syria, he sees an altar to made for a foreign god, and he really likes it. And so he tells the priest back in Jerusalem to make an altar just like that. Takes detailed notes, and he moves God's altar out of the way, and instead they use this copy of the pagan altar right in the temple. In Jerusalem. I mean, this guy took his own sons and laid them to be killed and burned on an altar to these pagan gods. He became an awful, wicked man. Isaiah's words in Isaiah chapter 7 went in one ear and out the other. Ahaz didn't trust God because Ahaz didn't want to trust God, and no promise or threat could move his stony heart Now one of the big questions that today's passage asks us is what about you? What about us? When your life starts to fall apart. When your sense of of safety and security gets threatened When you feel small and powerless, and you feel like big forces are coming to get you, you feel vulnerable in the face of other people or other challenges, who do you run to? Do you have an Assyria, a safe bet that you lean on and that you run to when things get tough? Isn't it true that when we feel powerless, there's often something that we want to run to right away? When we find ourselves in feeling the same way that Ahaz felt, there's something that we turn to that we use to feel safe. Maybe it's your career, your skills, or your possessions, things you surround yourself with that help restore your sense of, of power Maybe it's a substance like food or alcohol that you use to to try to comfort your heart. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe there's a person that really needs you and and so you be with that person because them needing you helps you feel okay or Maybe you take the root of becoming a bully. You find someone that you're bigger than and you abuse them with your words or with your fists because it helps you feel big. Maybe it's some virtual escape like video gaming or worse pornography where for a few minutes you can pretend to be big and strong. Or maybe you just give in to the fear and the anxiety completely and you just allow yourself to be all consumed with these thoughts of everything bad that might possibly happen to you. You know, it's interesting. I've just given a bit of a list here of, of, of a number of really key destructive behaviors and attitudes and problems and relationships that people in the modern world face. And many people, many Christians struggle with these things as well. And what so many of these end up being are ways that we try to find a safe place for our vulnerable hearts when we feel small in the middle of a big scary world that feels like it's coming to get us. These are our versions of Assyria where we run to to feel safe. And so many of the problems in our life come because we go the route of Ahaz instead of going the route of Ahaz's father, David. You know, David, if we read his story, was in Ahaz's spot time and time again. Small, vulnerable, people coming at him, trying to kill him, trying to take him off the throne. But what did David do? Psalm 3, 5 to 6 I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Psalm 18, to 2 I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Do you hear David's heart there? God was his safe place. God, the living God, that was where he ran to. When he felt small, when he was being threatened, when he was vulnerable. And this wasn't just some abstract feeling. Like, David really relied on God. God was really all that he had. And David really trusted in God for real. He could have killed Saul. He could have taken things into his own hands. But instead, he really trusted God. One commentator in my studies this week wrote this. The only way we can have God is by relying on him and using him. For the only way it is possible to accord God's deity to him is by using him and risking one's life upon God's word by trusting his promises and obeying the revelation of his will. That's what David did. It's not what Ahaz did. But what about you and I? Are we going to lean on God amidst our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities because we know he's the only safe place? Because we know that God really did move heaven and earth to give us a sign that he's trustworthy. And it's right here at this point that we're going to go back to something that I'm sure has been driving some of you totally nuts for the past few minutes, because there's this big thing in verse 14 that I haven't talked about till now. See, we looked at this sign of Emmanuel back in verse 14, and we saw there's one side of this sign of Emmanuel that seems to be describing a three-year-old kid. And by the time he gets to be that old, these countries aren't going to be a problem anymore. That seems to be one side of this sign of Emmanuel. But that's not all that's going on there. There's some big clues that that's not all that's going on there. Because isn't it, isn't it strange that God said, I'll move heaven and earth, and yet the sign he gives is just, just a child being born who has a name, Emmanuel? Like, that's, that doesn't seem like a heaven and earth type sign. And isn't it strange that Isaiah draws attention to the fact that a virgin shall conceive? Yeah, so maybe she's a virgin now, but she's going to conceive by normal means and then have a child. But, but why draw attention to the fact that it's a virgin? That word in the Bible is always used of an unmarried woman. That word is never used of a married woman. In, in the minds of the Israelite people of that day, that's someone who wouldn't, would never have a child. And isn't it interesting, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 8, which we'll look at next week, Isaiah refers to the land of Judah as your land, O Emmanuel. That's Isaiah 8, 8. That language of your land, O name, that's never used of just an ordinary person in the Bible. That language is always used of like a king or the people as a whole or God himself. So there's there's this clue in Isaiah chapter 8 that Emmanuel is not just someone ordinary. And finally, there's his name. God is with us. How could just one ordinary child be the sure proof that God was with them, especially in the midst of all that exile and judgment? So, on the one hand, this sign of Emmanuel seems kind of straightforward. But on the other hand, you're like, there's more going on here. And, and the Bible does this all over the place, right? 2 Samuel 7, the promise about the son of David. On the one hand, you're like, oh, that's Solomon. And then you read it some more and you're like, no, there's more going on there than just Solomon. Same kind of thing. It's like a sketch where you're like, I think that looks like that person. But no, that, that, that's not. That's, that's someone other That's someone else. And so it is here. These words about Emmanuel were like a sketch. And they may have been partially fulfilled in Isaiah's day. Yeah, there may have been a child, just a woman who was a virgin at that time and then got married and had a kid and named him Emmanuel. That may have happened. But these words point us beyond that to a greater fulfillment. A day beyond Isaiah's day when God would move heaven and earth to give a, a virgin who was a virgin a son. Who would not just be called Emmanuel, but would really be Emmanuel, would really be God with us. And this child would prove once and for all that God can be trusted when this child grew up and hung on a cross, bearing his father's judgment for all the wickedness of his people. And then he would rise again three days later and he would send his spirit to be with his people so that today we can say, God is with us. That's why this church is called Emmanuel. Through his Holy Spirit, he is with us, and he's promised to return and take us to be with him forever on a new heavens and new earth, and God will be with us. And so you and I today, we understand this sign of Emmanuel way better than Ahaz did and even way better than Isaiah did. We know that God is trustworthy. We know that God keeps his promise. We know that that the life and death of Jesus are our hope and our confidence. Think of Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 38 to 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the sign of Emmanuel. Look at Christ in his birth, look at Christ in his death, look at Christ in his resurrection, look at Christ in his rule and his spirit with us and know that he is trustworthy and he's going to keep his promises and you can count on that. And so we come back to the same question. Is there a chance that anywhere in your life you know all of this in your head, but you got an Ahaz heart. Refusing to rely on the Lord, refusing to trust his promises. And So the exhortation I want to give you is to look to Christ, to come to Christ, to look to the sign of Emmanuel, look to the God with us who is with us and who promised to return. Repent of your unbelief and grab a hold of the promises of Jesus that are for all who believe today. And may God, through Christ, be your safe place, the one that you run to, the one that you seek your confidence and your hope in. And this is such a perfect place where we're going to pivot and we're going to turn to the Lord's table this morning the Lord's table, a place where we can repent of our Ahaz-like unbelief and where we can receive the forgiveness that Emmanuel died on the cross to give us, where we can grab hold of his promises again, receive Jesus's grace by faith and say afresh, Lord, this week I'm going to trust you. I'm going to obey you because I believe you. And where we will proclaim his death until he comes. God who was with us, who is with us and who will be with us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would the truth of your word, the truth of the sign of Emmanuel soak into our hearts. Lord, don't let us be like Ahaz who got threatened, got scared and ran to human answers. Lord, would we hear in here a call to be still, to be quiet, and to trust you? You've proven, Lord, you, you've proven again and again that we can trust you. And if we need it anymore, we see the cross, we see the empty grave, and we look forward to the day when you'll split the skies, Jesus. Lord, now as we celebrate this meal, would we run to you and may we never stop running to you until you come to us like you promised. Thank you, Lord. Amen.